0: Good morning, beloved. If you would turn in God's holy word to First Corinthians fifteen. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty through twenty eight is our sermon text this morning. The title of today's sermon The Last Adam. the first fruits of the resurrection, the last Adam, the second Adam, the better Adam, the truer Israel, is the first fruits of the resurrection. By way of context, before I read the text, let me just share a couple of words to bring us up to speed some of you might be aware of it, maybe not you know i i think i have a, a fonder memory of my sermons than you do and that's okay and probably rightly so but i have been uh... methodically working through 1 corinthians uh... fifteen on easter sunday over the past few years and today we pick up with verses twenty to twenty eight some in corinth are denying the resurrection of the dead. It's not so much they're denying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, per se, but by implication they are. They're denying the the resurrection of all humanity at the end of fallen human history. How could that be? How could God reconstruct out of nothing the bodies of every man, woman, and child who's ever lived, Well, I think if you go back to Genesis 1, verse 1, I think the answer resides there. But nonetheless, they were denying the resurrection of the dead, and Paul takes up his pen and defends the the doctrine upon which Christianity stands or falls. Without the, the bodily, physical, material resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, supposed son of Joseph... There is no Christianity. There is no gospel. There is no hope, and you are still dead in your sins. And what I'm about to do is vanity. So, Paul defends this historical doctrine in verses 1 through 11. And then in verses 12 to 19, he spells out the disastrous consequences if Christ be not raised. That the apostles' preaching is false. They're, they're a bunch of false witnesses. They're liars. Paul sets out the, the timing, the order, the sequence of the resurrection. How is it all going to unfold? What's the chronology of the resurrection of the dead? Let's listen now as I read verses 20 to 28. But 1 Corinthians 15, it's found on page 961 of your pew Bibles. The Word of the Living God. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, a historical man, Adam, came death, by a man, a historical man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when He, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is exempted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. So that, or that, God may be all. In all, thus far, the very words of the living God, may He add His eternal blessing to my exposition and to our hearts as we sit and stand before Him today. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we come in the One who has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits, even Jesus Christ, and ask that He would increase, that I would decrease, that You would take my poor, weak efforts And bless them, that your people might be fed, might be duly equipped, that they might be cemented and moored in our Lord Jesus Christ this day. We pray this in the name of the one who lives for us, who prays for us, who is coming again for us, even our Lord Jesus. Amen. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3 famous chapter, the birds made that song. Some of you don't know who the birds are. You think they're little fowl that fly, and that's true. But there was a band called the birds, and they had a song based on Ecclesiastes 3. But Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 2 says, For everything there is a season and a time under every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And Paul would add, if he would be so bold to add, A time to be raised from the dead. And while believers have been spiritually raised, we've seen this in Colossians. We made this reference last time we were together in Colossians 3, that we've been raised with Christ from the dead. And our lives are now hidden in Christ in heaven where Christ is and kept by him and for him. Yet we know the bodily resurrection of God's elect in Christ awaits the the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ who died and was buried and was raised and ascended is coming again. And saints, it's in light of Christ's resurrection and subsequently our own resurrection that gives us definition, that gives us meaning and purpose and shapes and is the halogen light upon all that we do, all that we think, all that we set our hearts upon is in light of the great fact of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is, only, it is only, rather, our only hope and comfort in this life. Well, this morning, let's look at this text under these three headings. It's richly immense as far as theologically, and we could spend much time here, but today we have three points. The guarantee of the believer's resurrection, the guarantee, the certainty of the believer's resurrection, the timing, right, the order, the timing of the believer's resurrection, and then lastly, the goal, the, the telos, the purpose on which to which all is moving. What is the purpose of the resurrection in the grand scheme of God? So the guarantee, the timing, and the goal. So first, the, the guarantee of the believer's resurrection, verses 20 to 22. Paul wants us to see right out the gate that Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, guarantees our resurrection. He says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. You see, in verses 12 to 19, Paul has been speculating about the consequences if Christ be not raised. But now he triumphantly states, He declares, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Again, the great hinge of the Bible is predicated oftentimes on that one little word with three letters, but. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, beloved, Christ physically rose from the dead. It's not merely a nice metaphor, right? It's like winter giving way to spring. No, it's a historical fact. The tomb was empty on Easter morning, not because someone stole the body, but because the body that was laid in the tomb on Good Friday emerged alive on Sunday morning. It was confirmed by a host of witnesses, by the apostles themselves. And Paul has told us earlier in this chapter by over 500 witnesses, many of whom are still alive. You see, therefore, saints, the apostles' preaching is valid. Your, Your faith in Christ does save you. You are not in your sins. You do have the hope of the resurrection because Christ has been raised bodily from the dead. For all those who've fallen asleep well, Paul gives us two grounds for this doctrine of the resurrection of believers, those who've fallen asleep, those who've died in Christ. There are two things, or two ways organically and covenantally. Let's look at the first one. There's an organic unity between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, an organic unity. Paul says. Christ in His resurrection has become the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. Well, what's the background here? What's the Old Testament context of this understanding of firstfruits? Where does Paul pick this up from? Well, it's from the, the Feast of Fruits, the so first of first fruits, found in Leviticus 23. At the beginning of the grain harvest, the Israelites would bring in the first sheaf of the harvest. And the priest would take that sheaf and he would wave it before the Lord, much like a flag would be waved on the 4th of July, right? We see the folks waving the United States flag or so forth. Well, that's what the priest would do. He would take this bundle of sheaf that would be brought in, the first fruits of the harvest, and he would wave it before the Lord in appreciation and gratitude for all that God had provided. But not only was this a way of showing gratitude, it also symbolically assured the people of God that the rest of the harvest was sure to follow. The first fruit served as a sign that a greater harvest is yet to become. Right? It's kind of like this. One of the things I love about spring and early summer is that in May, we plant tomatoes. Right, those little plants that have that smutty smell you get from Lowe's or Home Depot, you plant them, and it takes about forty to fifty days to, to mature t- till the fruit starts to appear, and then all of a sudden you start to see these this green fruit, and as the sun beats down, as the temperature rises, as the rain falls, God providentially matures that fruit, and before long one of those tomatoes, the big, what is it? The big, uh, what do they call? Big, give me, somebody give me the answer. Big boy, yeah, the big boys, they get big. They're grown in that Hanover soil, right? That red clay. And it starts to mature, and it's ready to be taken in. You bring in that first fruit from the harvest, and you enjoy it. But it's the first, but it's what? It's not the last. Well, that's the picture here. Christ has been raised. The first fruits of the harvest has been brought in. Paul picks this up and says Christ is this firstfruits. He's the first person to be raised from the dead permanently. And there are some in the Word of God who've been raised, right? The widow named Son was raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. But subsequently they died. But you see, beloved, Christ, the last Adam, the firstfruits, has been raised permanently. New creation was born on Easter morning. Oh, Did the grass sing? Did the rocks cry out when the Son of God stepped out of the tomb? Surely it did. What a glorious thought that Christ, the firstfruits, has been raised. And His resurrection, as the one who's the firstborn from the dead, assures us that our resurrection is sure to follow. Those who die in Christ are said to have fallen asleep. And while their spirits have departed, right, You know, from Philippians, to to part is to be present with the Lord. But we're told in our catechism so beautifully, and I love this. One of the ruling elders brought this to my attention a few years ago in Westminster Shorter Catechism 37. It says, while our spirits depart and are with the Lord, our bodies do rest in the grave. What's it say? Still united to Jesus Christ, the firstfruits of the resurrection. awaiting the resurrection, their own resurrection on the last day. You see, what the Holy Spirit wants us to see here is that they're not two different resurrections. That's what I want you to see. Because if that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see, then I want you to see it. They're not two separate, detached resurrections. There's Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. No. Paul is saying there's one resurrection. And that one resurrection has already begun, Jesus Christ. The first fruits has been raised. You see, they're one in the same, organically united, separated only by time. But not only is there an organic unity, Paul also stresses there's a covenantal solidarity in the resurrection. There's an organic unity, firstfruits, the rest of the harvest will come. He's also saying here there's a covenantal solidarity with Christ's resurrection in ours, in verse 21, Paul answers the question, how can the dead be raised? That's a valid question, right? He answers, the resurrection must come through a man the same way death came through a man to all men. What does he say? For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Now, let me just say this. I have to say it because I feel the Spirit wanting me to say it right now. It's a man. It's not a pre Adamic nomad. It's it's not some kind of evolutionally developed being. It's a man made in God's image from the dirt of the ground who didn't evolve to become a man, but a man, a historical man, our father. So Paul takes us back to Genesis. God created Adam in his own image, upright, knowledgeable, and full of holiness. You see, death did not exist as part of God's original good creation. Death entered through the disobedience of a man and so spread to all men and can only be reversed by what? By implication of what Paul's saying, the logic, the syllogism, it can only be reversed, how? By another man, another Adam. Paul works this out further in verse 22. Notice what he says there. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve access to all the trees of the garden as a loving father who had prepared the nursery, welcoming his son Adam. Adam, you're free to eat every tree of the garden. I've made it for you, for my glory. You may partake of it, but there's one tree you shall not eat of. Genesis 2, 17. For the day you eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day you shall surely die when you partake of that fruit. This arrangement is known in systematic theology as the, the covenant of works or life, that life was held out to Adam. If he were to obey, he would be confirmed in everlasting life and righteousness He would enter into God's rest. But we know what happened, don't we? That Adam disobeyed. That when he ate, while he did not immediately physically die, he did spiritually die. And his death, or rather his sin, set in motion the seeds of corruption and decay that eventually led to his physical death. And the Bible tells us that Adam's actions affected more than himself. He was the the federal head. He was the representative that God had put in place of all humanity, not only physically, but covenantally as well. And when he disobeyed, he brought all of creation and those he represented down with him. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, as the Puritans would say. Well, kids hear this. I remember hearing this as a young person, not being converted at the time, thinking, that doesn't sound fair. Right, children? That doesn't sound fair. I wasn't in the garden. I wouldn't have done that. I didn't eat from the tree. But the word of God, children, says, you were in the garden. You were in the garden. You were in your father, Adam. And when he partook of the fruit of the forbidden tree, you partook of the fruit of the forbidden tree. You see, he was our covenant representative. And what is needed is another Adam a better Adam, a a truer Israel, a, a second Adam, if you will. And that's what we have in the covenant of grace, that covenant that God comes after the covenant works has been broken by Adam and He comes and He promises the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. The dragon slayer is going to come. Another Adam, a truer Adam, a better Israel who would reverse and bring about the life that Adam forfeited you see, we have that in Jesus Christ. In Christ we have this representative, this other representative, one who lived and obeyed in our place, who died in our place, that our sins might be forgiven. As in Adam, all die without exception. So also in Christ shall all the elect, all those in Christ, shall be made alive. Listen to Romans 5.18. Paul goes on in that same chapter in Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men... So one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men in Christ. In Adam, we are dead. We are without hope. We are without God. We are awaiting a fiery judgment to fall. But in Christ, we're made alive. We've been translated from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son through our regeneration and union saving union with Jesus Christ and given a living hope as we were reminded this morning the question this morning is this who are you in we know by birth by organic biological birth you're in Adam but are you in Christ Are you in Christ? You see, there's a beautiful illustration that Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan writer, says that there's a belt that hangs from Christ's waist. And there's a belt that hangs from Adam's waist. And all of humanity is hung on one of those two belts. either The belt of Adam, condemned without hope, without God, awaiting a fiery judgment, or you're hanging from the belt of Jesus Christ, the better Adam, the truer Israel, the Lord our righteousness, the branch, the seed of Jesse, the dragon crusher, the serpent's great foe. The question is, from whose belt do you hang, Christ or Adam? If you are in Adam, you're still in your sins, under condemnation, awaiting eternal death. If you're in Christ, you've been made alive, presently reigning with Christ now. And one day, your body will be raised to inherit a new heavens and a new earth. You will be raised in Jesus Christ. Our grounds for the assurance, Christ, the first fruits of the erection, has in fact been raised. You see, saints, it's only in Christ we can have such rock-solid assurance Life is uncertain. How much longer will I live? The older I get, I ask that question two or three times a day. I think, how many more sermons will I be able to preach about the better Adam? How many more times will I I stand before you and plead with you to be reconciled to Jesus Christ? How many more times will He give me? How much longer? How many more Sabbath days will I have? Can I have peace when I face death? What's it going to be like to die? You say, oh, pastor, that sounds so morbid. That's so discouraging. Oh, beloved, it is life. How will you die? Will you die hanging from Adam? Or will you die hanging from Jesus Christ? That beautiful belt that's been won, not with silver and gold, but by the blood of the Lamb, such love, no language can I offer. I have no language. I'm, I'm not articulate enough to express it, to tell of this great love of the Father and the Son. I can't speak of it the way I ought, and yet God takes my poor, inadequate words, my lisping tongue, and he blesses it. He gives the increase through the folly and the foolishness and the weakness his strength is made perfect. Who is this God who deals with us in this way? Who is this God? This God is the Lord. And Jesus Christ is his Son, the better Adam, the first fruits of the resurrection. Take courage. Be strengthened in Christ today. Know that your Redeemer lives. Right? The angel said, Oh, he's not here. He's not here, Martha. He's risen. He's risen indeed, just as He said. He's risen. Christ, the firstfruits, has been raised. He's the guarantee. Well, secondly, the timing of the believer's resurrection. We've looked at the guarantee, the guarantor, Jesus Christ, the firstfruits. Now, let's look at the timing. Well, the question naturally arises then, when will those who fallen asleep in Christ be physically raised? Let me just say this colloquial saying, right, fall asleep, is just another way of saying died. But the New Testament never says that believers die. It always says they fall asleep. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's just like, it's just a little hiatus, right? It's just a little sleep. But the morn will soon come and the dead in Christ will be raised. Right. Well, when will this happen? Paul answers in verse 23 by giving us a sequence. He says, All in Christ will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then, right, the temporal word, chronology here, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This word order is a military term. It's used to describe a sequence, a, a timing, a chronology. Well, what is the sequence? Christ, the firstfruits, has been raised, and then those who have fallen asleep in Him will be raised when He returns. Notice the order again. Christ, then we who fallen asleep, will be raised at His coming. And this word coming here is the word parousia, which refers to Christ's second advent. In verse 25, Paul assures us that Christ is presently ruling and reigning in heaven. And at the end of this present evil age, he will come again in judgment to usher in the glory of the kingdom in its consummative glory. And on that day, when those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they will be raised to everlasting life. So let's just think of a few people in our congregation. David Bowman will be raised from the dead on that day. Gift Agama will be raised from the dead on that day. Our former pastor, Howard Griffith, will be raised from the dead on that day. All of those who've died in Christ will be raised on that day. They will be awakened. The trump will sound. And Christ will descend. And the dead in Christ will be raised. From the dead. The garden will spring forth with all the flowers of heaven as God raises his people. And we who remain will be changed in an instant and will be caught up to greet the Lord when he returns. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, that's too marvelous. That's, that's too wonderful. That, that surely that cannot be. Well, that's what the Word of God says Let God be true and every man a liar. You see. This is what's going to happen. And when He comes, the end of this present evil age, the end of fallen humanity and history, will be final. On that day, redemptive history will have reached its goal. And coinciding with that day, Paul tells us in verse 24 that Christ, who is now presently reigning, notice what it says in verse 24, will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. You see what he's saying? Beloved, he's saying Christ is reigning now. And I thought to myself, what are the the implications for that are our whole sermon series? He's reigning now. We're not defeated. We don't serve a dead Savior, but a risen Lord who's ascended to the throne of David, Jesse's greater son. You see, this is the one we serve. And on that day, the Lord Jesus will present to His Father the created realm, which He has subdued to His kingdom, some by grace and mercy, having become God's children, others by sovereign power as a divine King who brings judgment. He will destroy every rule and authority and power. This word destroy here does not mean to annihilate, to cease to exist. Rather, it means to to quell, to render powerless. He's going to render them powerless. All the forces of evil that have marshaled themselves against Christ and His church will be defeated with finality. There'll be a quelling. There'll be a judgment. As Zephaniah, we were reminded so faithfully a few weeks ago, the judgment of God will fall. And there'll be silence. Silence. Every man will be covering his mouth like Job 38 on that great day. When the King of Glory comes, he comes on the white horse. He brings everything into submission to the Father. All demonic forces, the sentence of judgment will be carried out swiftly with finality. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every man, woman, and child who's ever lived. Ask me how that's going to happen. I don't know. How can this be? I don't know. I don't understand the anatomy, the biology, or how it could happen. All I know is it's going to happen. Every tongue is going to confess Him as Lord, every knee is going to bow. Before Him as Lord. But until then, we, the church of the firstborn of the dead, must continue to fight the good fight. Not being intimidated nor defeated and defaulting to despair, like I do so often, becoming so jaded and cynical. And I wonder, and I think to myself, does my church know just by looking at my life and watching my life that Christ has been raised? That Christ is reigning? That heaven's rejoicing? That the strong man has been bound. It's not Christ who's been bound, but the strong man who's been bound. He's come into the, the thief's house and he's bound him. He's bound the liar, the destroyer, the accuser, the brethren. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Be not discouraged. Be not discouraged, church. Remember the book of Acts? Remember the apostles? When will you restore the kingdom? It's not for you to worry about. But you'll be clothed with power, weight in Jerusalem. And then you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we saw in the book of Acts that the gospel goes forth. And does it go forth just like a little trickle of a stream? No, it goes forth like a mighty river, conquering. It conquered the world cannot God who conquered the world in the first century conquer it again? Now some of you are sitting there, Pastor, you're sounding so much like a post-millennial. Oh, that's because the text lends itself to that. Every Sunday I'm post-mill. Right? No matter how dark it gets, Monday through Saturday, I'm post-mill on Sunday because we get to proclaim Christ is Lord. Christ is reigning in His kingdom. He's sitting on the throne of David even now. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? You see, Christian, one day you're going to be clothed with a body like Christ. And those who've gone before us will rise first and then we who remain. We know this because the harvest has already begun. The the first fruits have been brought in. Christ, that first tomato has been brought in, if you will, right? It's been brought in. We know the rest is coming because Christ has been raised. So we've looked at the guarantee. We've looked at the timing. Let's close by looking at the goal. To which is all of this moving toward? What's the telos? What's the end game? In verses 25 to 28, the goal of the believer's resurrection. Paul now comes to the ultimate goal. But before he does, notice what he does. Paul reminds us that presently there's an ongoing battle between Christ and the demonic forces of darkness, right? So we saw in Colossians 3 a few weeks ago when Christ ascended into heaven, he took his seat at the Father's right hand where he presently rules and reigns. It's in this reign that Paul refers to in verse 25. Notice what he says there. He quotes from Psalm 110, the most quoted passage of Scripture in all of the New Testament, Psalm 110, for he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his foot, feet rather. The destruction of the last enemy, death, will occur, but not until Christ returns from the dead. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But beloved, until then, believers still die. We still grow old. We still get cancer. Some of us will perhaps die in auto accidents. Just because the first fruits has been raised, doesn't give us a get out of suffering free card. Doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean that these bodies are going to break down. Doesn't mean that most of us will bury a spouse in our life. Some of us have even buried children. Jesus' resurrection does not free us from the reality of facing death, yet it does free us from the reality of the fear of death. Right? We need not fear. For God even uses death. Death is his servant to usher into the fidelity, the f- felicity, rather, of heaven, his saints. As believers, we still live with the consequences of the fall, yet Easter reminds us that death is already defeated. The day is coming when death will meet its ultimate end. Leon Marr says this, At present, no man can resist the touch of death. Then death will be able to touch no man. Death may touch us for a little while, and barring the second coming, it will touch us all, but when Christ returns, the awful intruder called death will meet its final end. Nothing can separate us now from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And notice what he says in verse 27. We've got to move on. Verse 27, notice how he quotes Psalm 8. Psalm 8, you're thinking, that's strange. Why would Paul quote Psalm 8 here? Notice what he says in verse 27. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. You see, Jesus Christ, church, is ultimately the Son of Man that David speaks of. You see, what Adam the first forfeited and lost in that dominion mandate there in Rome, rather than uh, Genesis 1, and, and 28, right? Dominion to rule and reign as God's, God's vice-regent made in His image has now been restored through a better Adam, a truer Israel. Christ has is conquered all things in heaven and on earth will at last on that last day be brought to its ultimate subjection to the better Adam. All rule and authority and power even death itself will be placed under his feet. And then to what end? That God may be all in all. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. Now let me just say this. Theologically, i got to say it. He's not talking about ontological subjection of the second person of the Trinity to the first person, the father. That's not what he's speaking of. He's speaking about the economic subordination within the covenant of redemption. As the role, as the mediator, as David's son, he will subject himself. That's what he's speaking of here. Not ontology, but rather economy, the way it's happening. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Notice what it says, that next word, so that, or that, God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. That's where all of history's going. That God, the triune God, might be all in all. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He might be all in all. To Him be all the glory and all the honor. You see, church. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in adoration and worship. The victory has been won. Christ, the first fruits brought in, He guarantees it. And our bodily resurrection will happen in God's timing so that God may be all in all. So, beloved, this is our chief end until that day to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what God wants you to do, children. That's what He's made you for, is to glorify Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him. I'm so grateful that divines put enjoy Him. He could have said, well, to glorify Him. But I think that would be... Derelict in the sense that it doesn't pick up on those great tones and themes of Psalm 16 that we sung about. I didn't even know we were going to sing today. That at his right hand are pleasures. And in his presence there's joy forevermore, you see. Glory to be acknowledged, to be adored, but also joy to be enjoyed in his presence forever and ever. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this great work of salvation. We thank you, Father, that you decreed it. We thank you, Son, that you executed it. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you apply it now to the elect, those purchased in Jesus Christ before time began, that we, the elect, are created for you to enjoy you, to glorify you forever, that you might be all in all. Be with us now this Easter day. May your word continue to feed us throughout it, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.